All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, number 41 for August 2022. Harry, Cecil, and Kitty. Three more drinkers to know. is a National Historic Landmark, an Arboretum, a Sculpture Garden, a Nature Preserve, and an Active Cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for tens of thousands of people every year. Its sister cemetery, Laurel Hill West, located across the Schuylkill River in Bala Kenwood, was founded in 1869. It has a history and a population of its own. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University in Philadelphia, volunteer tour guide at both Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West, and volunteer podcaster. Have you ever heard the poem, The Philadelphia Rosary? It goes, Morris, Norris, Russian Chew, Drinker Dallas, Coxon Pew, Horton Pepper Pennypacker, Willing Shippen, and Marcou. These and others were the Philadelphia version of the Boston Brahmins or the 400 of New York City, the backbone of a city on the rise. Now, I've mentioned the drinkers in an earlier podcast on Cecilia Bow, how her sister married into the prosperous drinker family and adopted Cecilia as their own. I also talked about a 20th century drinker in a prior podcast, the rebellious and stunningly beautiful Amy Ernesta drinker Bullet Bow Barlow. Today, I will tell you of three of Ernesta's siblings, also interred under simple stones in an out-of-the-way hillside plot at Laurel Hill West. Henry Sandwith Harry Drinker, lawyer extraordinaire, amateur musician par excellence, and rescuer of the Von Trapp family. Cecil Kent Drinker, founder of the Harvard School of Public Health and primary investigator of the Radium Girls. And Catherine Drinker Bowen, whom her aunt called unpaintable, but who made a career writing award-winning history books and biographies despite a lack of training in history or in literature. I will even mention two Drinker brothers not buried at Laurel Hill West, including inventor of the Iron Lung, Philip Drinker. Three siblings, three totally different personalities and very different stories. On today's All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, Harry, Cecil, and Kitty. Three more drinkers to know. have talked about some of the drinker family before. Way back in the early podcast, The Lady Artists, I talked about famed portraitist Cecilia Bow, whose sister, Amy Ernesta, married into the drinker clan. Then about a year ago, I did a podcast on Amy Ernesta drinker, Bullet Bow Barlow, who led an amazingly interesting life and spent World War II on the radio doing broadcasts as Commando Mary. 
Cecilia Bow and Ernest Drinker Barlow are interred in the family plot on a hillside of the Pencoid section of Laurel Hill West. Today I am going to try to finish the story on this remarkable family by talking about Henry Sandwith Drinker and his wife Sophie Hutchinson Drinker, Dr. Cecil Kent Drinker and his wife Dr. Catherine Rotan Drinker, and the youngest child, Catherine Drinker Barlow. But let me fill in a bit at the front end. There have been many drinkers in Philadelphia history. The first was Edward Drinker, known to everyone simply as Old Drinker. He was born in 1680, and he lived in a cave above the Delaware River. He lived to be 102, he had four wives and 18 children. When Ben Franklin was serving as minister to France, he was asked how long Americans lived. He said that he couldn't tell until Old Drinker died. Edward Drinker was not a Quaker. He used to buy copies of King George III's more objectionable proclamations and make them into kites for his grandchildren and great-grandchildren to fly. Dr. Benjamin Rush noted that Old Drinker was a hearty eater until a few days before his death. He liked his hot toddy and died, quote, in full assurance of immortality, end quote. The first Henry Drinker, known simply as the Scrivener, was born in Boston in 1709. He's buried at Friends Arch Street Meeting House Burial Ground. His son, the next Henry Drinker, lived from 1733 to 1809, and he became quite infamous during the American Revolution. This is the Henry Drinker who was exiled to Virginia during the Revolution for refusing to fight. This Henry's wife, Elizabeth Sandwith Drinker, was one of the most thorough and best-known chroniclers of Colonia Philadelphia through her diaries, which she kept for nearly 60 years. The next Henry Drinker lived from 1804 to 1868. He's buried in Susquehanna County, Pennsylvania. He had a child named Henry, who died at a young age in 1860. But Henry's brother, Sandwith Drinker, was a trader in China. He had a son in Hong Kong with his wife, Susanna Bud Drinker. They named him Henry Sturgis Drinker. And this is where our story will start today. Henry Sturgis Drinker was born in 1850. Graduated from Lehigh University in 1871 as a mechanical engineer. He used his skills to help engineer the two-mile-long Kong Tunnel which made railroad travel between eastern Pennsylvania and New York City possible. His engineering for the tunnel was so precise that when the two ends met in mid-mountain, the lines were within three-eighths of an inch and the grade within half an inch. He then studied law in Philadelphia and was admitted to the bar, serving primarily as litigator for the Lehigh Railroad. He became comfortably wealthy. In 1879, he had fallen in love with the famed portrait painter Cecilia Bow, and he proposed to her. She had no intention of marrying anyone and spoiling her career. So instead, Henry married Cecilia's younger sister, Amy Ernesta Bow, known as Etta. 
the story of how the Bow sisters had been abandoned by their father and raised in a household of strong women in West Philadelphia after their mother died is told in an earlier podcast. For the first year of their marriage, Henry and Etta Drinker lived with her grandmother Levitt, Uncle Will Biddle, and Sister Cecilia in West Philadelphia at 4305 Spruce Street. Their first child, Henry Sandwith Drinker, whom everyone called Harry, was born there in 1880. Other children followed, James in 1882, Cecil in 1887, Ernesta in 1892. For the growing family, they built a large suburban house on the campus of Haverford College. It was the first house inside the gate from Lancaster Avenue, and it was about 20 minutes from town by the Paoli local. The family would often, quote, go to town on the cars, end quote. Harry, James, and Cecil all graduated from Haverford Grammar School, then just across the road from their house. It was also here that the last two children, Philip and Catherine, were born. Harry's life revolved around his studies, cricket, and especially music. He found at an early age that he absolutely loved music, and he spent hours of every day practicing at the piano. He knew that he would never be a professional pianist, but nevertheless pushed himself on the instrument until he was a very accomplished amateur. When Aunt Bo was studying at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts, she painted Harry while he was sitting in his mother's lap when he was about three years old. She called it Le Dernier Jour d'Enfance, or The Last Days of Childhood. It won Cecilia Beau kudos at the 1887 Paris Salon. You can see this painting today at PAFA. Aunt Beau followed in 1889 with another portrait, Harry at the piano. The piano was where Harry spent most of his spare time. His sister Catherine tells a family story of Harry practicing in summer beside an open window with his friends outside batting balls and shouting until he put his hands over his face in misery. Oh, ma, he moaned. I wish I didn't love music so much. Harry did not study music at Haverford College, but he did play end on the football team, which was frequently written up in the Philadelphia newspapers. He even took up fencing. He was fiercest at cricket, where he would talk about an umpire's bad call at the wicket for days afterwards. Harry graduated from Haverford College in 1900 with an A.B., then earned another A.B. from Harvard University in 1901. And Aunt Bo painted him again, this time standing confidently wearing a black suit with a black bow tie, his gloved hands crossed in front of him. He attended University of Pennsylvania Law School and Harvard Law School, earning his L.L.B. in 1904 from Penn. He finished at the top of his class, summa cum laude, and won the coveted Sharswood Prize for an essay on the term res geste, which translates as things done. George Sharwood, 1810-1883, was Chief Justice of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court and Dean of the University of Pennsylvania Law School. He is interred at Laurel Hill East in Section R, and I will do a podcast about him next year. 
After graduation, Harry became a clubman, and he joined the prestigious First City Troupe. He took a job with a law firm, which had been founded by John Christian Bullitt, 1824 to 1902, Laurel Hill East, Section P52, and Samuel Dixon, 1837 to 1915, Laurel Hill East, H115, 119, and 21. John Christian Bullitt was the man who wrote the Philadelphia City Charter in the 1880s. His statue stands outside the north entrance of City Hall. Bullitt's grandson, William Christian Bullitt, later married Harry's sister, Ernesta. Dixon served as counselor for the University of Pennsylvania and on the board at Penn from 1881 to 1915. After the death of Dixon, Harry took on a new partner, Thomas Reith, R-E-A-T-H, in 1919. Then in 1924, Drinker and Reith took on their first lateral partner, Charles J. Biddle. The name of the group changed from Dixon, Beitler, and McCouch. And as any long-time Philadelphian knows, the powerhouse law firm in town for many years was theirs. The esteemed Drinker, Biddle, and Reith. In 1905, Henry Sturgis Drinker was named president of Lehigh University, and the family moved back to his beloved Lehigh Valley. The three older boys were away at college, but they came to visit frequently, bringing friends and girlfriends. On Sundays, they would attend services at the Presbyterian Church, where a wheezy organ and a lifeless soprano would make Harry wince. But as soon as the service was out, Harry and his little sister Catherine, 16 years his junior, would run uphill to the Episcopal Cathedral, arriving in time for the offertory, so they could hear the choir boys sing, accompanied by a very fine organist. This, of course, meant having to donate two offerings every week. Young Catherine soon took up the violin and became Harry's favorite partner, despite their 16-year age difference. More about Catherine later in the podcast. Her friends called her Kitty. Her brothers called her Cats, naming her after the Cats and Jammer Kids, a popular newspaper comic strip of the era. Harry sometimes simply called her Infant. In 1911, Harry married Haverfordian Sophie Lewis Hutchinson, eight years his junior. Sophie, whose father was also a Pemberton, was cousin to half of well-bred Philadelphia. Harry had courted her by playing four-handed piano works with her. He proposed at Aunt Bo's summer place in Gloucester, Massachusetts. When Bo heard the news, she told Harry that it was, quote, dangerous to marry a woman who is always right, end quote. She sort of made up for her tactless remark by painting Harry and Sophie together, holding hands and walking but art critics agree that it is one of her lesser portraits. Kitty Drinker notes that, quote, Sophie's face in repose was not pretty and had a sulky look, but when she smiled, her eyes lit up, two dimples appeared, and small, white, even teeth. She was not bony or rangy like the Drinkers, but dainty, with long yellow hair, a neat figure, and small hands and ankles. All her movements were deliberate, and she was quiet-spoken, though she possessed, we were afterward to learn, a formidable temper. Harry and Sophie were deeply in love when they married, 
and they remained so for more than 50 years. Harry's feeling for his wife was at times overwhelming. At 80, when he penned his unpublished autobiography, he wrote that when during business hours he met Sophie accidentally on Chestnut Street, he still went weak at the knees and that she never ceased to interest him. He couldn't stand it when she was away from him even one night. One time she went to Arizona for two weeks with a sick child. He confessed to Kitty as he paced the room. Sister, do you realize that only a line divides us from hell? As Sophie was returning to their home in Marion on a train, Harry arranged for orchids to be delivered to her at every big station along the way. Harry and Kitty's brother Cecil could not stand Sophie and frequently treated her with a rudeness bordering on savagery. He said, she makes things safe for Harry. Why should that big black-haired bozo be safe? Harry was born for something better than safety. More about Cecil later in the podcast. Harry Drinker personified the elitism of the bar in early 20th century America, a pure Philadelphia lawyer. In 1929, at an American Bar Association committee meeting addressing standards for admission to the bar, Harry referred to, quote, Russian Jew boys who come up out of the gutter and were merely following the methods their fathers had been using in selling shoestrings and other merchandise, end quote. He thought that immigrants received a disproportionate number of ethical complaints made against lawyers. He proposed a solution to the perceived problem of immigrant lawyers who had not absorbed the professional norms of the American legal profession would be to require at least two years of college prior to admission to the bar. As chair of the ABA Committee on Professional Ethics, Drinker authored what is generally considered the definitive mid-20th century American treatise on lawyers' professional ethics, legal ethics, in 1953. In 1929, Harry and Sophie had built a house at 249 Marion Road in Marion Station. It's just a minute or two walk to the Marion train station into town. There they raised four children, one of whom was Ernesta Drinker Ballard, a founding member of the National Organization for Women and a horticulturalist who helped make the Philadelphia Flower Show an international event. The house included a massive music room that easily held two grand pianos, a Hammond organ, and room for 150 people sitting on folding chairs. They started having Sunday evening singing parties, which became world famous. Now, it's not that Harry gave up his passion for the piano. He realized in middle age he would never reach the goals that he was setting for himself. So he switched his passions from the keyboard to choral music. One evening, 20 musical friends, mostly string players, showed up without their instruments and sang the Brahms Liebeslieder Walzer, with Harry and Sophie's daughter, Cecilia, playing obligatos on the flute. Harry was in heaven. Next time, 40 singers came, then 60, until it eventually became 150 people. It was rumored that this chorus was the only one on the East Coast 
that always had enough tenors. Young men flocked to the house from Haverford, Princeton, and Penn. No one was invited who could not sight-read. There were no passive listeners, and they never gave a formal concert. There was a small string orchestra of eight or ten in which Kitty played. The players were in the room at 3 p.m. on Sunday afternoon for practice. Singing started promptly at 5.30 p.m. and ended at 9.30 with an hour in the middle for supper. Harry conducted. On the wall of the music room was a gorgeous 1894 painting by Aunt Bo called Ernesta with Nurse, which now hangs in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Harry Drinker was conductor for these sessions. One evening, Willem van der Waal, a harpist under Toscanini, came from New York to sing with the group. At the end of the evening, the surprised van der Waal exclaimed, the sound is good. Mr. Drinker, you are the only choral conductor I ever heard who allows the music to go from Bach to the singers without getting in the way. Over a 30-year period, this group of amateurs and professionals who loved singing together went through the 217 Bach cantatas, his St. Matthew Passion, and the Mass in B minor. One summer, at the Staatsbibliothek in Berlin, Harry came upon the choral works of Bach's four sons and six of his cousins. These he transcribed into modern clefts and wrote out the orchestra parts on the steamer coming home. On one of their music evenings, the group sang Vaughan Williams' Benedicite at Mass in G. Afterward at supper, a Haverford College student exclaimed at the remarkable sight-reading of the singer who had shared his music and hadn't missed a note. Harry told him, oh, that was Dr. Williams. As Sophie came to know choral music, she grew more and more indignant. She realized that the great church music was sung by men and boys when much of it belonged to women. The Magnificat, for example, had Mary's joyful words being sung by little boys in surplices. She thought it was an insult to the female sex, a travesty of their function and their innate genius. She formed her own chorus of women called the Montgomery Singers, which met in the music room on Wednesday mornings. Over many years, Sophie wrote the book, Music and Women, the Story of Women and Their Relation to Music. She published it in 1948. It was a seminal work in women's musicological and gender studies. There was so much music in the Drinker household that people would ask Harry how he found time to be a lawyer. He always replied that he spent 80 hours on the law and 20 hours on music. Sophie and I don't play golf or cards, and we don't go to the theater or accept dinner invitations if we can help it. That gives us plenty of time for everything we want to do. And what about his law practice? He never talked with family about his cases. But if you looked in the newspapers, you would find out what cases he was involved with. United States v. Morgan and Company. United States v. General Foods. United Mine Workers v. Coronado Coal Company. Coal Metal Process v. Carnegie, Illinois Steel. Some of these cases were argued for up to 12 years. 
working their way from the lower courts to the appellate court and reaching the end at the Supreme Court, with Harry standing up to argue in striped pants and a cutaway, talking without notes. His sister Ernesta was in Washington once when he was arguing and watched his performance. She said it was smooth as silk, and afterwards she thought that she must have dreamed it. Harry was a rock-ribbed Republican who loathed Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal. He despised all liberals. He got physically sick when FDR was re-elected in 1936. He, along with John W. Davis and George Horton Pepper, frequently argued against New Deal legislation in the Supreme Court. Pepper is the man who succeeded Boyce Penrose in the Senate after Penrose's death in 1922. Harry felt the New Deal was counter to the American dream as interpreted by Calvin Coolidge. He was convinced that neither labor nor the federal government should be allowed to impede American enterprise. Harry's parents, Henry and Etta, had purchased a house across the street from Harry and Sophie at 252 Marion Road. Harry found a new hobby, chopping wood out by the garage on Saturday and Sunday. The bigger the tree stump, the happier Harry looked. He had the telephone company deliver discarded poles and the Marion Township Commission deliver dead trees for him to chop up. In 1933, Harry got a letter from Penn announcing they wished to give him an honorary degree, Doctor of Music. He checked with the partners in the law firm before accepting this honor. By this time, he had served on the board of the Savings Fund Society, the Juilliard School of Music, the Westminster Choir College at Princeton, vice president of the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts, president of the Franklin Institute. He translated and saw to the publication of 159 Bach cantatas, 389 chorales, the St. John and St. Matthew Passions, the Christmas Oratorio, all the vocal work of Brahms, and numerous vocal compositions of Mozart, Schumann, Wolf, Metner, Mussorgsky, Schubert, Beethoven, and Schutz. And he made them all available in multiple copies to many hundreds of members of the Association of American Choruses. One day, as he was working on his thematic index to Bach chorales, a friend phoned him to say that a tune was running through his head and he couldn't quite place. Harry said, you say it goes do, mi, re, do twice in minor. That's the melody, the Wir Christenlut. It's number 35 in the Christmas Oratorio, and it appears in three cantatas, numbers 40, 110, and 142. And speaking of Do, Re, Mi, that song is going through your head now, isn't it? Yes, it's appropriate, totally appropriate for you to hum or whistle Do, Re, Mi about now. Now, you probably know part of this story. Maria Augusta Cochera was born near Vienna in 1905. She lost both her parents at an early age and was raised in a family appointed by the Austrian courts. She received an education at the State Teachers College in Vienna. In 1922, when she was 17, she was accepted as a novitiate at Nonberg Benedictine Convent at Salzburg. Several years later, while teaching at the convent school, she was assigned to tutor a daughter of widower Baron George von Trapp, 
a decorated submarine commander in the Austro-Hungarian Navy during the Great War. Maria and the Baron were married in 1927. She was 22, he was 47. In addition to the Baron's seven children, they had three more of their own. The last one was born in America in 1939. With many talented children, the family started a singing group known as the Trap Family Choir. When the Anschluss came in 1939, the Trap family hurriedly escaped to America, leaving their wealth behind. They arrived at Ellis Island with $4 and no scheduled concerts. They spoke no English. Harry Drinker knew of their dilemma and he rescued them. His father Henry had died in 1937 at 87 and his mother Edda died in early 1939 also at 87. They're both buried in the family plot at Laurel Hill West. But Harry now had an empty house across the street from his own on Marion Road that he thought would fit the Von Trapp family perfectly. He met them in New York and brought them back to Marion. He got them a six-month visa extension. He loaned them money to hire a publicity agent. And for the next four years, the Trapp family singers toured the United States and Europe, always returning to their home at 252 Marion Road. Later, they moved to a house on Horder Street in Mount Airy. It was in 1943 that the Von Trapps moved to Vermont, where they continued their concert career for 20 years and established a famous inn. In 1949, Maria wrote her memoirs, The Story of the Trapp Family Singers. Ten years later, it was made into the Broadway musical The Sound of Music, which won five Tony Awards out of nine nominations, including Best Musical. Six years later, there was a repeat when The Sound of Music was made into a movie, which won five Academy Awards, including Best Picture. At that time, The Sound of Music was the most successful release in movie history, surpassing Gone with the Wind in revenue. I think it is safe to say that without the generosity of Harry Sandwith Drinker, the musical The Sound of Music would never have happened. Harry was also a huge fan of the writings of Anthony Trollope. In 1949, he wrote a monograph called The Lawyers of Anthony Trollope. And in 1950, he found time to write an introduction to a new edition of Orley Farm, in which he carefully picks apart much of Trollope's work for legal inconsistencies and trivial errors. As a true Trilopian, Harry read every one of the great author's 48 novels, many of them several times. Harry and Sophie stopped their singing parties around 1960. He was 80 years old when they sent out the notices. Now, over the years, more than 3,000 people had signed the singer's book that lay open by the piano on Sunday nights. When they received these letters, hundreds of people wrote back telling the drinkers what those evenings of singing Bach and Brahms had meant to them. A year or two later, Haverford College held a concert in Harry's honor. The boys sang his favorite choral melodies, and the college's Henry S. Drinker Music Center was dedicated in his name. But after the concert, he seemed bewildered. Harry grew very thin. His legs would not hold him. His color was gone. He suffered through what appeared to be a series of mini-strokes. 
He spent his days in a big armchair in their bedroom with a shawl over his knees. His hands were withered, his skin nearly transparent. He struggled to hold conversations and at one point said, I used to be an interesting man. Sophie was frustrated. Harry always said he'd take a pill when he got old and helpless and finish himself off. We had an agreement, but now he never even thinks of it. Two years before his death, the American Bar Association voted to give Harry their highest award, the ABA Medal. It had been presented the year before to Felix Frankfurter. Knowing of Harry's condition, the lawyers invited Sophie to come to the banquet in New York City and receive it for him. When she returned, she put the gold medal in Harry's hand. Sophie told Kitty, I think he understood. He closed his fingers on it, and there were tears in his eyes. Henry Sandwith Drinker died on a March morning in 1964. He was 84 years old. His library of more than 300,000 pieces of music is available at the Philadelphia Free Library. Many years before, he had made a request for the inscription on his very modest tombstone. It's indistinguishable from the others in the crowded plot. The inscription is from Shakespeare, Act 5 of King John. The days shall not be up so soon as I to try the fair adventure of tomorrow. Sophie died in 1967. She's buried with Harry. In 2002, 35 years after her death, the Sophie Drinker Institute was founded in Bremen, Germany. Henry Annetta's second child and second son was James Blathwaite Drinker. He was born at their Haverford house in 1882, two years after Harry. James led a successful life as a steel executive in Tacconi. His 1917 marriage to Mary Frances Fisher led to three children who lived to adulthood. Dr. Henry Middleton Trinker, who was chief of pediatrics at Chestnut Hill Hospital for many years. Sandwith Drinker, who was killed at the Battle of Iwo Jima and awarded a posthumous silver star. And Mary Elwin Polly Drinker Ellick, who married Hungarian economist Peter Stephen Ellick, a teacher at Villanova University for many years. But since James is buried at Trinity Church, Oxford Churchyard in Northeast Philadelphia, I will not talk about him anymore today. The third child, Cecil Kent Drinker, was born in 1887. His family pronounced his name Cecil in the American fashion. I must assume that he was named after his aunt Cecilia Bow. When he was a year old, brother Jim, age six, wrote a brief note to Aunt Bow in Paris. Dearest Auntie, when we say no, 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 no to baby, he says, aha, very loud, the bad thing. It was a prophecy all his life. If people said, no, 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 Cecil spurned them. Cecil was an intense young man with a stern disposition who had a nervous habit of running his hands through his stiff, straight hair when he was excited. 
He had a brilliant mind, and as an adult, his colleagues just accepted that his comprehension was so quick that he stayed miles ahead of everyone else in his laboratory. But what set him apart at an early age was his manual ability. He could do anything with his hands. At Haverford, the house was full of Cecil's contraptions in various stations of completion. There was a rowboat in the cellar, a bobsled on the third floor. The drinker yard was the only one in the neighborhood that boasted a merry-go-round, a shoot-the-shoot, and a Ferris wheel, all constructed by Cecil. The shoot-the-shoot ran on wires between two tall trees. The Ferris wheel carried four riders and got underway by a running push. Cecil's intensity was legendary among family members. In the family biography, his young sister Kitty describes it as, quote, a febrile quality, compelling, contagious. Once I asked my mother what that crowd of boys wanted standing around the porch steps, she told me they were waiting for Cecil to tell them what to do. Her tone when she said it was grim and sarcastic. The first time I saw a picture of the Pied Piper with all the children and rats following after, I thought the Piper's hair should be light brown and that his ears ought to stick out more. Kitty worried that there was a latent violence in her brother that would erupt someday. After his rowboat worked to everyone's satisfaction, Cecil decided he wanted to build a cruising yawl, 26 feet long. He would build it in the stable, cart it to the Delaware River, and live on it during vacations. He was 18 years old. When he launched the completed boat named the Gee Whiz, it sank like a stone. He had forgotten to put in the deck plugs. He hauled her out, fixed the problem, and the Gee Whiz served the Drinker family for 30 years. A homemade 26-foot-long boat. His sister Ernesta was five years younger than Cecil. Almost at once, there was something about her that drove him to total irritation. He could not look at Ernesta without turning mean. Later, he would adapt the same attitude to Harry's wife, Sophie. But Harry would not tolerate the constant teasing of his sister. One day when Cecil would not stop, Harry picked him up and threw him across the room over a pool table. It had no effect on Cecil. The taunting continued. One of the things that maddened him so much was Ernesta's decision to adopt a Bostonian accent with broad A's and no R's. When Ernesta tried to leave the house, Cecil would plant himself in front of the door. Con the Conaries sing, oh, plant the tomato, oh, dear me, dear me, he would inquire of Ernesta in a high, affected voice. This went on for years. Ernesta did not talk back. She simply managed to look superior, raise her luminous dark eyes, and sail by him. Cecil took to calling his sister Mrs. Asterbilt. It was not a compliment. Once they even came to blows, and for the rest of their adult lives, they rarely spoke. Cecil, on the other hand, picked up the accent of the fisherman he spent time with at the summer home in Beach Haven. He gave two syllables to words like round and town. He sounded two R's where one would do. He would call out through his nose with no irony, 
Supper's pertin' near ready. Come on downstairs. In the spring of 1908, when he was a first-year medical student at Penn, Cecil met a Bryn Mawr Jr. from Waco, Texas, named Catherine Rotan. They fell madly in love, and by the fall they were engaged. They vowed they would marry after both of them finished medical school. They wrote each other love letters from across town. Catherine was elected president of her class of 1910 at Bryn Mawr. She was also captain of the field hockey team, which demolished its opponents with scores like 12 to 1 and 17 to nothing. She graduated third in her class and moved on to Women's Medical College to complete her dream of becoming a doctor. When he was 23, Cecil almost died. After suffering a ruptured appendix, he had subsequent operations for adhesions. Four long purple scars ran down his abdomen which he would proudly show to anyone at the medical school who asked. When Cecil graduated from Penn Medicine, announcements were made for four academic prizes. Cecil won three of them. His average over four years of medical school was 99%, something that had never been done before. He went on to a residency at Peter Bent Brigham in Boston before spending time in research labs at Penn and Johns Hopkins. At age 29, Cecil Kent Drinker was invited by the preeminent physiologist of the time, Dr. Walter B. Cannon, to teach physiology at Harvard. But a few months later, Dr. Cannon was summoned to Europe during the Great War to research shock from wounds. Cannon's seminal work on shock is still taught today. Cecil and two assistants carried on the work in the Harvard laboratory for two years until Cannon's return. He and Catherine launched the Journal of Industrial Hygiene in 1919, the first scholarly journal of its kind for occupational medicine. Philip Drinker was Cecil's younger brother by seven years, 14 years younger than Harry, two years younger than Ernesta, two years older than Kitty. Cecil got Phil to join him at Harvard, and the two brothers spent their life as research professors, first in the Harvard Medical School, then in the closely affiliated School of Public Health. Philip, who is buried in New Hampshire, is remembered today for his 1926 invention, the drinker respirator. We now call it the iron lung. His invention saved hundreds, if not thousands, of lives during the scourge of polio in those days before modern ventilators and vaccinations. Cecil and Catherine are remembered today for something equally important, the Radium Girls. In 1917, during the middle of the Great War, word went around in Orange, New Jersey, that a new factory of the United States Radium Company was opening and would pay girls and women good money for apparently simple work. Their task was dial painting. That is, they would paint luminous numbers on watches and instrument dials so they could be seen in the dark by soldiers. These were good paying jobs for women, many of whom were teenagers. Cousins Catherine Schaub and Irene Rudolph started painting dials in 1917, and Schaub worked her way up to being an instructress who taught new employees the best techniques for filling in the delicate numbers on the dials. I instructed them to have a very good point on the brush, how to put the brush in their mouth to get the best point on it. This method of lip 
dip and paint was called lip pointing. It had been adopted from the China painting industry. The salary for painting 250 dials a day, or one every two minutes during an eight-hour workday, was about a penny and a half per dial, so a skillful dial painter could make about $4 per day. As the women took other jobs or got married, others came in to take their place. And by 1920, perhaps 400 women had worked in the factory. But many of these women were ill, disfigured. Some were dying young. They developed horrible necrosis and infections of their mouths, affecting their lower teeth and mandible, or jawbone. They called it jaw rot. Since many of the sick dial painters were relatives or friends, word spread quickly. Rudolph got sick in 1922. She died in 1923, the year that her cousin Schaub started suffering jaw and tooth problems. Both had consulted dental experts who knew of at least two earlier deaths from similar unusual symptoms. But the death certificates on those two had listed the cause of death as syphilis in one and a combination of anemia, pneumonia, and Vincent's angina, or trench mouth, in the other. Many people started to suspect that these illnesses and deaths were occupational. People initially believed phosphorus poisoning was the culprit, but the composition of the luminous paint was a trade secret. When phosphorus, used in the manufacture of matches and fireworks, is absorbed through gums and carious teeth, a condition called fussy jaw develops. Destruction of mouth soft tissue and bone, similar to the jaw rot of the dial painters. In 1909, in what was probably the first systematic investigation of an industrial disease in the United States, 15 U.S. match factories had been studied and more than 100 cases of fossy jaw were found. Besides the facial disfigurement, the necrotic mandible led to malnourishment due to an inability to chew or comfortably swallow. When the cartoon strip Andy Gump was introduced in 1917, the lead character appeared to be missing his mandible, just like victims of Fosse Jaw. The United States Radium Company was controlled by two physicians, one of whom was the inventor of the luminous paint, which he had given the innocuous name of Undark. A chemical analysis of the paint confirmed that there was no phosphorus present but that the ingredient in the paint, radium, that caused its luminescence was dangerous. The Labor Department took no action, and the women kept on painting and kept on getting sick and dying. For three decades, science had been trying to ignore the dangers of radiation. X-rays had been discovered in 1895, the element radium in 1898. The discovery that radiation caused burns and destroyed tissue was thought to be useful therapeutically, especially for tumors. But then, early radiation pioneers started dying from exposure. At least two of these so-called radiation murders, John Carbutt, who died in 1905, and Dr. Charles Leslie Leonard, who died in 1913, are interred at Laurel Hill West. Marie Curie, the woman who had discovered radium, lived until 1934. But she died of aplastic anemia, a bone marrow disease, at age 66. It was probably as a result of working with radium. And despite 
early evidence of harm, some companies started producing radium medications. There was a fad that radium taken internally or externally would give you a healthy glow. Radon, a radioactive gas produced during radium's decay, was dissolved in solution to drink or inject or sold as a gas to be inhaled. Beginning in 1910, researchers documented that radium could accumulate in bones, but people were not alarmed yet. Because of the damage to bone marrow, some victims of radium exposure developed anemia, leukemia, and other blood diseases. In 1911, deaths from leukemia were being reported among laboratory personnel who worked with x-rays and radium. And by 1920, articles appeared finding a strong correlation between working with radium and developing anemia and leukemia. Eager to halt a mounting scandal, the company president, Arthur Roeder, contacted industrial hygiene expert Cecil Drinker in March 1924 to investigate his workers' complaints. Drinker, wife Catherine, and fellow epidemiologist William Castle from Harvard School of Public Health faculty agreed to visit the Orange, New Jersey factory to observe the watch dial painters at work and to speak with their doctors. What they found was appalling. The factory was saturated with radium-contaminated dust, and no steps had been taken to protect the workers from radioactive material. Cecil observed that every inch of the painters glowed, even their corsets. After the girls blew their nose, their handkerchiefs would glow in the dark. Supervisors had been assuring the all-female workforce, some as young as 15, that the paint was safe and perhaps even beautifying. The women thought nothing of painting streaks in their hair, painting their fingernails, painting their teeth as a party trick. After three months of investigation, the Harvard group came to a conclusion. Cecil reported back to the company. We believe the trouble is due to radium. He recommended cautions, which he thought would not prove a serious matter financially. But Dr. Roeder vigorously disagreed with these conclusions. Why were only the dial painters in New Jersey sick? How about others who worked with radium? The company ignored Drinker's conclusions and insisted that the Harvard deductions were tentative and based on circumstantial evidence. Roeder wrote, Our conclusion is that there's nothing harmful anywhere in the works. He insisted that a contagious infection contracted outside the factory must be to blame and referred to an internal report that refuted Cecil Drinker's findings, a report he refused to show Drinker. It was this same year that Catherine Schaub's dentist discussed radium jaw in a paper on jaw necrosis that he presented before the American Dental Association. This was actually the first paper to document radium poisoning. When he heard of Drinker's plan to publish the HSPH team's report, Roeder threatened to sue. Cecil, who had been a bully all of his life, suddenly found himself being bullied, and his team hesitated, sharing its findings. On Cecil's staff at Harvard was the brilliant Dr. Alice Hamilton, 
sister of the Greek scholar Edith Hamilton, and another pioneer in industrial health and occupational toxicology. In 1919, after she had worked many years with Jane Addams at Chicago's Hull House, Hamilton was the first woman appointed to the faculty of Harvard University. Harvard did not even admit women's students until 1945. When Hamilton found out about Drinker's work and his reluctance to publish the report, she pushed for publication, initially with no success. But then, through a contact at the National Consumers League, Alice Hamilton learned that U.S. Radium had submitted a report to the New Jersey Department of Labor which contradicted what the Harvard team had said and then signed it with their names. Knowing Cecil's stubbornness, Hamilton alerted Catherine Drinker in a 1925 letter. The New Jersey Department of Labor has a copy of your report and it shows that every girl is in perfect condition. Do you suppose Roeder would do such a thing as to issue a forged report in your name? Confronted with this evidence that Roeder had falsified a report over the team's name, the drinkers ignored the continued threat of a lawsuit and they published the report in August of 1925. In response to the discovery of U.S. Radium's duplicity, the New Jersey Labor Commissioner demanded compliance with the safety suggestions of the Harvard team. The U.S. Radium Corporation closed up shop in New Jersey and moved across the Hudson River and resumed dial painting in New York City. When Cecil's authentic work was revealed, the woman who had been affected sued the company for damages. It took them two years to find a lawyer willing to take on U.S. Radium. At their first appearance in court in January 1928, two women were bedridden and none of them could raise their arms to take an oath. They were dubbed the Radium Girls. The saga of the Radium Girls was an important step in the history of both the field of health physics and the labor rights movement. The right of individual workers to sue for damages from corporations due to labor abuse was established because of the Radium Girls case. In the wake of the case, industrial safety standards were demonstrably enhanced for many decades. In 1928, the New Jersey women accepted a final settlement before the trial was deliberated by the jury. Each of the radium girls received $10,000 outright. It's now equivalent to about $160,000. A $600 per year annuity, now equivalent to $9,500. And they were paid $12 a week, now equivalent to $200, for as long as they lived and all medical and legal expenses incurred would also be paid by the company. The lawsuit and resulting publicity were a factor in the establishment of occupational disease labor laws. Radium dial painters were instructed in proper safety precautions and provided with protective gear. In particular, they no longer shaped paintbrushes by lip and avoided ingesting or breathing the paint. But radium paint was still used in dials as late as the 1970s. In the past few years, the Radium Girls have become better known due to books, a play, a movie, 
There was even a musical which advertised itself as a, quote, jaw-dropping new musical. The medical podcast Sawbones had a recent episode about the Radium Girls. Now, back at the Harvard School of Public Health, Cecil was made dean in 1935, and he served until 1942. He had lost none of his earlier manual skills, as he would blow tiny glass tubes to cannulate lymphatic vessels. His pure physiology studies resulted in the 1941 publication of his big book, The Lymphatics, Lymph and Lymphoid Tissue, a used copy of the first edition, if you can find one, now goes for about $400. It was also in 1941 that he delivered the Lane Lectures at Stanford. Another of his compositions was Not So Long Ago, a book on 18th century medicine, which he called from great-great-grandmother Elizabeth Drinker's diary. Between 1912 and 1950, Cecil Drinker published 250 scientific monographs, a few written alone, some with Catherine and other co-workers. Cecil even topped Harry in being honored by his alma mater. Haverford College presented Cecil, class of 1903, an honorary DSC in 1933. It wasn't until 16 years later that Harry, class of 1900, was presented with an honorary Lit D in 1949. But Cecil was the drinker who imitated the family name. He was drinking heavily, initially in secret, but eventually walking around with a bottle of Coca-Cola heavily laced with ethanol from the laboratory. He started getting paranoid and imagined that his colleagues were making plots against him. One day in 1942, he showed up drunk to a faculty meeting. When he sobered up, he sent his resignation as dean, which was accepted without comment. Soon after, he checked himself into the newly established psychiatric clinic at the McLean Hospital near Boston, and he stayed for three months treatment but he refused to communicate with any family except for Catherine. And characteristically, Cecil stubbornly refused to recognize the depths of his own illness. He got involved with the administration at McLean Hospital and raised money for a research laboratory. So the next thing the family knew, he was making a speech at the dedication of the new laboratory. After five more years of blatant incidents involving alcohol, he resigned his professorship of physiology in 1947. He was occasionally picked up by local police to sleep nights off in the town drunk tank. To the horror of Catherine, he would take his boat out on the bay for overnight stays. He developed chronic medical problems. He lost his pugnacious personality and he became an invalid. In 1955, Cecil's co-workers, all research physicians, commissioned a portrait of him which hangs in the Bowditch Library at the Harvard Medical School. It's on the wall next to his mentor, Dr. Cannon. Catherine and Cecil lived until 1956. Catherine had developed leukemia, possibly due to her earlier work with radium, and she died on March 15th. When Cecil found out she was dead, He stopped eating, and he refused artificial feedings. And the next month, he too was dead. 
when Catherine Kitty Drinker Bowen wrote her family history. The chapter on Cecil ends with the words, If these two were given a chance of living their lives together again, hard work, tragedy, and all, they would say yes without a backward glance. Cecil Kent Drinker and Catherine Rotan Drinker are buried together in the family plot, as far from Ernesta's final resting place as possible. You probably noticed the name change in the introduction to the podcast today. Laurel Hill Cemetery is now Laurel Hill East. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is now Laurel Hill West. There is one website. It's laurelhillphl.com. There is no change in the number of tours for you to enjoy, however. Sunday, August 7th, is the annual Car and Hearse Show at Laurel Hill East from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Vintage hearses, flower cars, ambulances, all on display at no charge. Bring your camera. Tuesday, August 9th, is the Shade Trees of Summer Tour at Laurel Hill West from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. as Master Arborist Aaron Greenberg leads the way. Now, technically, August 11th is the full moon, but if you'll come to Laurel Hill East on Friday, August 12th at 7 p.m., you'll get an opportunity to take a tour of the grounds with an experienced guide as the grounds slowly darken under the full moon. It should be reminiscent of our annual Soul Crawl tours in October. For introductory tours to Laurel Hill East, there are three Hot Spots and Storied Plots tours in August. Saturday, August 13th from 10 a.m. to noon with veteran guide Dave Schwartzkopf. Thursday, August 18th from 10 a.m. to noon with Rich Wilhelm. And Friday, August 26th from 10 a.m. to noon with Jerry McCormick. There are two theme tours, both with a military flavor, and one of them is brand new. First, Dr. Andy Waskey leads a survey of Laurel Hill East generals with his lead, follow, or get out of the way tour on Sunday, August 14th from 10 a.m. to noon. The new entry is one that I am really excited about. It's on Saturday, August 20th. It starts at 10 a.m. at the First City Troop Armory on 23rd Street before it moves to Laurel Hill East for an introduction to many of the troop's leading lights. Veteran guide Peter Howell leads the way on this look at an important part of Philadelphia's history. Laurel Hill West has one of its introductory tours, Sacred Spaces and Storied Places, on Saturday, August 27th from 10 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. Pamela McMahon leads the way on that one. And the Boneyard Bookworms monthly meeting is on Wednesday, August 31st at 6 p.m. August sounds like a great time to pay us a visit. Find out more about a couple of the liveliest places in the city. Check out the calendar at laurelhillphl.com. When is the last time you thought about the Book of the Month Club? 
In pre-Amazon, pre-internet days, BOMC was a way for people who didn't live near a bookstore to obtain books considered worthy of reading by a panel of experts. Since it was founded in 1926, the company has distributed more than 570 million books to members across the United States. The founder and driving force behind the BOMC during its first few decades of operation was a Philadelphia-raised advertising copywriter named Harry Sherman, who became a master at mail-order promotion. Sherman attended Philadelphia's Central High School, class of 1905, where his classmates included future Algonquin Roundtable pundit Alexander Wolcott and future perfect fool Ed Wynn. After completing university studies at the Wharton School and the University of Pennsylvania Law School, Sherman and his partners were convinced that the idea of selling books through the mail was a winner. And in 1926, they established the BOMC. In April of that year, the club's first selection was sent to 4,750 original members. It was Lolly Willows, or The Loving Huntsman, written by English novelist Sylvia Townsend Warner. The company's operating premise was that most book lovers do not read as many books as they intend to. By agreeing to purchase at least four books a year, club members could choose a curated group of books in the mail. The concept was immediately popular. By December 1926, the company had net sales of over half a million dollars, and membership approached 100,000 by 1928. Several authors became Book of the Month Club favorites through the years, but one of their best-selling authors was a woman who was trained in neither history nor literature, but who wrote historical biographies that, although shunned by real historians, were gobbled up by the public. She was the youngest of the drinker children, Catherine. Five times her books were made Book of the Month Club selections. On the first day of 1897, Henry Sturgis Drinker and his wife, Amy Ernesta Bow, welcomed into the world the last of their six children, Catherine Schober Drinker. She was 16 years younger than Harry, who usually referred to her as infant. The other children called her Cats, after the popular cartoon of the day, the Cats and Jammer Kids. Friends called her Kitty. As a reminder, her aunt was the great portrait painter Cecilia Bow, whom I've talked about before, and whom the family simply called Bow. Bow often used family members as models. Her sister and brother-in-law, Harry four times, Cecil and Phil as toddlers, and her favorite, the beauty Ernesta, at least nine times. She never painted Kitty. Once Bow explained to a cousin within earshot of Kitty, there was a girl, the youngest, but she had never been painted, about 11 years old, an intelligent child, but not, you know, paintable, not with that forehead. When I saw her in the cradle, I remember telling her mother, there's a forehead that will go to Bryn Mawr and write books. The second half of Bo's statement was correct several times over. When Kitty was only seven, she told her mother that she wanted to play the violin. Her mother took her hands and said, that is not an easy thing to do. 
It will take courage. Do you think you will be up for it? She later wrote that it took years for her to understand her mother's question. Without courage, no one can be a sincere artist, even an amateur artist. When the family moved to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania in 1905, Kitty attended first Miss Kellogg's Dame School and then the Moravian Seminary in Bethlehem. Before her teen years, she had traveled the world with her family and started keeping a journal, copying Ernesta, who was five years older. And she kept playing the violin, challenged by older brother Harry, who spent every spare moment trying to master the piano. In her 1934 collection of essays, Friends and Fiddlers, Kitty shared an early musical memory, but she disguised her oldest brother Harry as John. When I was young, I loved Beethoven because I loved the tunes, the melody. As a child, I had been literally rocked to sleep to the Kreutzer Sonata. John and the old Steinway fighting it out in the parlor below until my small white iron bed shivered and my spine shivered with it. John was getting ready for Katrina, who would come down from Boston with her violin next month or next weekend. Katrina was an excellent violinist. A formidable alliance, Katrina and Beethoven, for a young lawyer to attempt to enter. No wonder the walls shook and the ceiling of the old parlor rocked to 6-8 time. John practiced the Kreutzer like one demented, whistling the violin parts. He practiced it at night, and he practiced it before breakfast, and it will haunt me till I die. But I'm not sorry. Indeed, it was the Kreutzer that was responsible for the commencement of my fiddling career. I remember well my amazement when Katrina, arriving, took out her fiddle, nodded to John, and did things to the Kreutzer. Magic things. What was this wild, slippery voice creeping in and out, so deep, so high, so like John's Kreutzer, yet so more than John? So it was this John had meant when he had said, wait until you hear the fiddle, wait until you hear the two of us. And now I was hearing it. I sat on the red parlor sofa with my mother. I remember my legs dangling, the pressure of my mother's hand around my fingers and her quick smile answering mine. I whispered, what is it, mother? She said, it's Beethoven, child. And I was a little offended that she could have thought me so stupid, but I know now that she could not more richly have answered my bewildered question. When Kitty was 17, she enrolled at St. Timothy's Boarding School in Catonsville, Maryland, where she studied the violin, moving on to the Peabody Conservatory of Music in Baltimore from 1915 until 1917. Her next stop was the Institute of Musical Arts in New York, which became the Juilliard School in 1919. Despite her obvious talent with the violin, Kitty put her musical career on hold in 1919. On March 19th, at the Arch Street Presbyterian Church at Logan Square, she married Ezra Bowen, an assistant professor of economics at Lehigh University. 
and she became Catherine Drinker Bowen. Together, the Bowens had two children, Ezra Bowen Jr. and Catherine Drinker Bowen Jr. She did not give up her love for music. She never reached the level of playing solo in concert halls before audiences, but she continued playing in amateur string quartets and took up teaching private music lessons for the rest of her life. Within a year of their marriage, Kitty and Ezra moved to Easton, Pennsylvania, where Ezra was named head of the Lafayette College Economics Department. It was in 1920 that Kitty started writing. Her first success was an entry in an Easton Express writing contest that won her $10. Despite her obvious talent, she kept her writing a secret as she continued to write stories and even a daily column for the Express. She wrote articles for other publications, Women's Home Companion, Pictorial Review, Good Housekeeping. In 1924, after years of small-scale publishing, she published two books, a 127-page children's book titled The Story of the Oak Tree by Mrs. Ezra Bowen, and a historical study of her former home, simply called The History of Lehigh University. However, Bowen did not claim responsibility for either of those books until 27 years later, in 1951. Kitty published her first and only novel, Rufus Starbuck's Wife, in 1932. It is believed to be semi-autobiographical account of her marriage to Ezra Bowen, as it speaks largely of female writers and their struggles for independence. It was in 1935 that she published a small book of essays about music and amateur musicians titled Friends and Fiddlers which was lauded as a spirited look at music in the home and its influences. I have read this small book a few times. I keep coming back to the obvious joy that she had in playing music with friends and in teaching. One of my favorite stories. I have two violin pupils, little girls of 12. One is rich and brilliant and one is a Quaker and fears God. Between them, they long ago upset my preconceived notions about talent and musical progress, or rather they caused me to redefine for myself the word talent. The quick pupil, the brilliant one, is ambitious, determined to learn to play as well as or better than her sister. Yes, and you will learn to play, Joanna, my dear, but will you ever learn music? I have watched you, your fiddle under your chin, and I have seen you smile at your mistakes. Funny, isn't it, to hear the notes come wrong? A good joke on Papa Haydn to make his dotted sixteenth sound like triplets? I have seen you, Joanna, slap your bow against your ankle. I have heard you crack your fiddle against the table leg, a sound that causes any strong player to wince. And your lovely lashes have not fluttered. Is it that you know too well another fiddle lies waiting in the well-lined nest from which this one was drawn? Easier, oh, easier for the camel to go through the needle's eye than for you, gifted unfortunate Joanna, to enter the kingdom of music. And patience, straight-haired, silent patience, whose home has known no music, 
whose fingers close gratefully around the cheap violin I lend her and who has to start miles behind Joanna's pistol shot. Patience so shy in the presence of music that weeks passed before I discovered her very keen sense of pitch. Patience has frowned for months over key signatures which Joanna has been familiar with since the cradle. One day I lost my temper with Patience because she was so slow. Again and again we repeated the phrase, and again and again she played it wrong. I looked at her violin, and upon it lay a watery pool. I thought it was perspiration. I have seen a like pool upon Sasha Jacobson's fiddle after a Schubert quartet, and I asked myself in the manner of Lady Macbeth, who would have thought the child had so much lymph in her? Then the child blinked and blinked again. There was a splash, and I saw from whence flowed this precious pool. Patience, I cried, how awful of me, how unforgivably awful. The child said, I want to get it right. It's a nice piece. I want to get it right. And she went right on playing. In 1936, Kitty divorced Ezra Bowen and started writing in the genre that would make her famous, biographies. Her first beloved friend, the story of Tchaikovsky and Nadea von Meck, chronicled the letter-driven relationship that existed between the once-struggling composer and the widow-turned-benefactor who supported him. It sold more than 150,000 copies in the United States and was selected by the Book of the Month Club as one of the day's best biographies. In 1939, Kitty's life garnered two more milestones. She remarried, this time to a surgeon by the name of Thomas McKean Downs, and she released another book. This work was titled Free Artist, the story of Anton and Nicholas Rubinstein. To recreate their lives, she traveled to Russia to perform research and interview people who knew and remembered the brothers. Howard Taubman of the New York Times called Bowen's recreation of the struggle that the Rubenstein family and then the brothers went through as a handsome, throbbing tribute to two heroic fighters for art. After two successful biographies on Russian composers and performers, Bowen set her sights on the 19th century German composer Felix Mendelssohn. Her timing was unfortunate. With Germany's 1939 invasion of Poland and the beginning of World War II, she was unable to travel around Europe as she had earlier done in Russia for research purposes. And with the Mendelssohn project falling by the wayside, she turned her focus to an American icon, Oliver Wendell Holmes. In 1944, Yankee from Olympus was released and was the beginning of her search for, quote, the foundations of the American constitutional government, end quote. Her goal was to tackle Holmes' personal growth and not the law, philosophy, and public affairs that were the chief content of Holmes' public life. In her search, however, Bowen was often accused of stretching the bounds of truth. Eugene Rostow said in his review, 
Yankee from Olympus is full of reconstructed personal anecdotes, heroic or intimate or both, which have the unmistakable touch of legend. Some of them are almost certainly the invention of one or another of Mrs. Bowen's informants. Now, despite this negative connotation, the criticism meant that Bowen's book did what she meant it to do. It investigated Oliver Wendell Holmes, the man, as he was known to the people around him, close or otherwise. While serving in World War II, 23-year-old Naval Lieutenant John Lindsay read Kitty's biography of Justice Holmes and said that it was what inspired him to practice law. Later, of course, John Lindsay served as mayor of New York, and he ran for president in 1972. Her next work, 1950's John Adams and the American Revolution. Again, Book of the Month Club selection. The American Revolution focused on exactly that, the pre-revolutionary and revolutionary John Adams. Bowen's use of the multitude of Adams' manuscript materials that were once overzealously guarded by the Adams estate allowed her to paint an imaginative yet accurate picture of John Adams during his developmental years in the late 18th century. Kitty's next project was the first of three collections of essays describing her method of biography. The Writing of Biography, 1951, was followed by Adventures of a Biographer, 1959, and Biography, The Craft and Calling, 1969. When Kitty released another biography in 1957, it even received critical acclaim from historians. The Lion and the Throne, The Life and Times of Sir Edward Coke, 1522-1634, was both a Book of the Month Club and History Book of the Month Club selection. In addition, it garnered the National Book Award for Nonfiction, the Nonfiction Award of the Athenaeum of Philadelphia, and the Henry M. Phillips Prize in Jurisprudence from the American Philosophical Society. By following the man, as she had done before with Holmes and Adams, she was able to put his achievements, both personal and professional, in a context that is often forgotten. The transition between the reigns of Queen Elizabeth and King Charles I. Unlike with Holmes, where Bowen was drawn to a symbol of the American Constitution and government by the people, Bowen saw Coke as symbolizing the theory of, quote, government of laws and not of men, end quote. As was her style, she wrote a biography that captured the imagination of those educated in law and the layman alike. Kitty's second husband, Thomas, died in 1960, was buried at Arlington National Cemetery, and she kept on writing. After the success of Lion and the Throne, she received the 1962 Women's National Book Association Award given to a living American woman who derives part or all of her income from books and allied arts and who has done meritorious work in the world of books beyond the duties and responsibilities of her profession or occupation. 1963 saw the publication of Francis Bacon, The Temper of a Man. Three years later, 1966, Bowen published Miracle at Philadelphia, The Story of the Constitutional Convention. 
This has been described as probably the best single popular work on how the miracle of our Constitution came to pass. This world historic drama told by a master storyteller lays out the events as they unfold, brings to the forefront the character, the vision, and resolve of the Founding Fathers, as well as the dissidents of the day. Kitty published Family Portrait in 1970. I used it as my primary reference in writing about her family members. Her final work was The Most Dangerous Man in America, Scenes from the Life of Benjamin Franklin. The book was published posthumously. It describes parts of Franklin's life leading up to the signing of the Declaration of Independence, including his life as an essayist and scientist in New England, and his time spent in London during emergencies such as the Stamp Act crisis. It shows Franklin, as Raymond Irwin wrote in books on early American history and culture, as both an Enlightenment figure and a common man. Before I finish, I want to share another of Catherine Bowen's marvelous tales from Friends and Fiddlers. Once again, John is actually Harry, and Sophie becomes Sarah. Having sung every Sunday night with my children and my brother's children, until we knew, as it were, every song in the book, I bethought me of those other children who have no aunts, fathers, and uncles to sing with them on a Sunday. Or rather, I did not bethink me, Sarah did. She told me of a bleak and windy place which called itself a home for friendless children. I went there, and somebody in a starched dress said, yes, I could sing with the orphans next week. The following Sunday, I too put on a starched dress and climbing a hill of spectacular bleakness, traversed a barren corridor and found my orphans. We sat and sang. Shall I call it singing? We sat and shouted, sleep baby sleep, and winter is done, while the gale raged around the naked orphanage windows. I had never led a chorus. My bewilderment upon confronting for the first time these 35 howling monsters was extreme. I tried discipline, the firm voice, the sharp retort, but while it brought silence, it did not bring singing. I began to sense dimly that what the orphans wanted was not discipline, but something else. So I wore one night, instead of a starched front, my prettiest dress to the asylum. Oh, Mrs. Bowen, they cried. I like your dress. I like your shoes with them red heels. Listen, my uncle's getting me new shoes next Tuesday. They drew near. They touched with rough fingers my flowery dress, my satin belt with the bright paste buckle. Mrs. Bowen, whispered small homely Rosie, I like to sing. I think your buckle on your belt is beautiful. And she threw her arms around my hips suddenly and laid her head against my stomach. Her glasses slid off. I said, Rosie? Would you like to come home with me some Sunday and sing with my children? Thus it came about that I ushered seven selected orphans into Sarah's music room one Sunday night, 
All seven arrived very nattily turned out in the latest fashion. Gray kid shoes with spiky heels, little capelets upon the shoulders. Sarah, who had expected poverty in patches, looked at me in bewilderment. John grinned. The seven orphans, ranging in age from 12 to 16, small spectacled Rosie among them, sat stiffly upon chairs, their gray kid shoes pointing disdainfully at the piano. They said, no thank you, to cake, and no thank you, to root beer. Sarah looked at me in desperation. What, her blue eyes signaled, is wrong with this party? Is it going to die? Is it turning completely sour? Are we being, of all things, patronizing? Then we began to sing. My two nieces sang. My two nephews. My two children. My brother and his wife. Two by two, like friends of Noah, we entered into music, lifting up encouraging voices. But my orphans needed no encouragement. They sang very loud and true. All seven burst into harmony. Three sang alto, four soprano. John looked at me in astonishment. For sheer volume, my orphans were out singing everybody, even John. He swung around on his piano stool. Well, he said, well, and the party began. They washed down liters of root beer, these orphans. Only crumbs were left upon the cake plate. Sure, we'll come again, they told Sarah. Sure, we'll have some new songs ready. You have some ready for us also, won't you? Yeah, added my small Rosie. That's it. Turn and turnabout's fair play. And then they announced they wanted an orchestra. <laughs> you are going to have to read Friends and Fiddlers to find how that story ends. In 1972, Catherine Drinker Bowen won the highest award that can be given to a Philadelphia woman, the Gimbel Prize, presented at the Bellevue Stratford Hotel. The only other writer to receive this distinguished honor had been Pearl Buck in 1963. In her acceptance speech, Kitty explained what it was like growing up in a household of alpha males. I was for women's lib when I was 14. When I was in school, I was born in 1897, so it was well before women got the vote, we had a debate about suffrage. I was captain of the affirmative side. I had four older brothers, great, big, strong. I had to be for women's lib to survive. Of the $1,000 check that accompanied the award, she said, I don't know if you're supposed to put it in a charity, but I'm going to put it into a violin. The day after my 75th birthday, I said, I need a new violin. Ridiculous. How long can you use it? The answer was about one year. Catherine Drinker Kitty Bowen died of cancer on the 1st of November, 1973. She was 76 years old. Her obituary noted that this woman with no college degree was an honorary member of Phi Beta Kappa and had received honorary doctorates from 12 colleges and universities. I am going to finish with words that she wrote when she was 37 years old. 
When I am 70, I shall begin to go furiously to concerts, all the concerts I can afford, many more than I go to now. I shall keep on going to concerts as long as I can find someone to carry me in and set me down. And I shall make a business of it. When Monday comes and I am going to a concert Monday evening, I shall save my energy all day, take a long nap in the afternoon, so that I shall not, as I do now, sink exhausted in row K and depend on Beethoven to bring me to life or put me to sleep. It will not require the first three movements of a symphony to clear the daily fog from my brain, to iron out the crazy tangles that bristle now between the innocent ear and the all-too-cautious, all-too-sophisticated cerebellum. No, when I am 70, if I have not learned, acquired that peace of soul, that receptivity which is true innocence, then I had rather be dead and worthy of no more various symphony than the rain upon my tombstone. When you visit Catherine Drinker Bowen's tombstone at Laurel Hill West, do yourself and her a favor. Find a version of the Kreutzer Sonata on your smartphone's YouTube channel. Play it as loud as you can and stare down the hillside. You won't regret it. episode of Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, features the story of Henrietta Cousins. Although she was not an artist herself, she became the catalyst for one of the greatest groups of female artists in the country when she became the housekeeper, the gardener, the cook, and muse to the Red Rose Girls. In other words, she was their wife. It's an amazing tale of love and friendship among four women. The September edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, looks at an American institution that almost everyone associates with Philadelphia, the first U.S. Mint. Several early directors and coiners are interred at Laurel Hill East, including the first director, David Rittenhouse, fourth director, Robert Patterson, his son, the sixth director, Robert Maskell Patterson, seventh director, George Nicholas Eckert, ninth director, James Ross Snowden, and others. I will talk mostly about what the Mint does and the responsibilities taken on by its directors. Laurel Hill East is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia. It's an easy walk from the bus stop at Ridge in Allegheny for SEPTA buses R1 and 61. Admission is free, as is parking in the small lot across the street. Street parking on Ridge is not recommended. 
Laurel Hill West is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Balakinwood. There is plenty of parking available, both at the main entrance and at the Bell Tower. Your best bet for public transportation is to take the SEPTA Regional Rail to Maniunk or one of the many buses to the Wissahickon Transfer Center on Ridge Avenue, then cross the Schuylkill River on the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge and come up Riders Ferry Road to the entrance near the Pet Cemetery. Both Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West are now open from 7 a.m. until 7 p.m. We welcome dog walkers, bike riders, photographers, painters, bird watchers, nature buffs, tree and plant lovers, and strollers, both the two-footed and four-wheeled variety. Both Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West are open for historic tours, and we still have occasional pay-what-you-wish virtual tours via Zoom. Find out more at laurelhillphl.com. If you follow us on Instagram and Facebook, you'll get a daily reminder of our inhabitants and activities. And if that's not enough, check out the virtual tours I've done on YouTube. Laurel Hill Hotspots and Storied Plots, virtual tours number one, two, and three will give you an overview. All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories video podcast number one is on illustrator A.B. Frost and his family. Podcast number 22 on ornithologists and entomologists is also available as a video podcast on YouTube. And I'd almost forgotten, I did one on the Furnace family also, uh, the, the connections between the Furnace family and Laurel Hill East. Uh, once you have fallen in love with these hot spots, become a friend of Laurel Hill, and you'll have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year, including some inside-the-mausoleum visits and at least two annual members-only podcasts of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. I'm Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University, reminding you to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. You can contact me, joe at joelex.net. Stick around to hear the references that I use for this podcast. And until the next time we meet, please stay safe, stay well. Bibliography for this was, a lot of it came from the book by Catherine Drinker Bowen called Family Portrait. It was an Atlantic monthly press book, Little Brown and Company, Boston, Toronto, from 1970. I probably took about three quarters of the information from that. But I also got a little bit from a review of Unequal Justice Lawyers and Social Change in Modern America by Gerald S. Auerbach, Oxford University Press, New York, 1977. That's where he quotes um, Harry Drinker with some of the racist things that he had to say about up-and-coming lawyers. There's a newspaper article, uh, Family Made Pennsylvania Hills Alive, Philadelphia Inquirer, 17 March 2002, page MC4, tells all about the rescue of the Von Trapp family. And then, my absolute favorite, bar none, Friends and Fiddlers by Catherine Drinker Bowen, Little Brown and Company, Boston, 1934. I love 
this book. I am not a musician. I'm not somebody who sits around aching to play a violin or sing. But there is something so joyous and wondrous about this book by Catherine Drinker Bowen. Again, it's called Friends and Fiddlers. I hope you can find a copy and read it and enjoy it as much as I did. I do have a copy of Music and Women, the story of women and their relation to music by Sophie Drinker. The reprint was the feminist press of the City University of New York. Uh, 1948 was the original edition. My reprint is from 1995. Radium Poisoning Revealed, a case study in the history of industrial health reform by Claudia Clark. That's from the Humboldt Journal of Social Relations, volume 19, number 1, 1993, pages 73 to 116. Clark went on to write one of the first books about the Radium Girls. A Short History of Occupational Health by Herbert K. Abrams, Journal of Public Health Policy, volume 22, number 1, 2001, pages 34 through 80. Much to my surprise, um, I hadn't listened to the podcast Sawbones for a couple of months. I don't know why, but I checked it out, and bam, they're doing, or they had done, a podcast on the Radium Girls last month. It's episode number 418. Just look for Sawbones. It's a medical history podcast, husband and wife team that do it. Radium Radioactivity and the Popularity of Scientific Discovery by Lawrence Badish. It's from the Proceedings of the American Philosophical Society, Volume 122, Number 3, June 9, 1978, pages 145 to 154. And then Radium Girls by Bill Kovarik and Mark Newsel. This is a website. It's environmentalhistory.org. I accessed it in July 2022. Of all the online free sources, this was by far the best. Again, Kovarik, K-O-V-A-R-I-K, and Newsel, N-E-U-Z-I-L, are the authors from the website environmentalhistory.org. A monograph by Catherine Drinker Bowen called Historians Courageous. That's from the Proceedings of the American Philosophical Society, Volume 101, Number 3, June 30th, 1957, pages 249 to 254. And then a delightful read, Biographer's Holiday by Catherine Drinker Bowen, American Library Association Bulletin, Volume 53, Number 10, November 1959, pages 843 to 849. Thank you for listening. See you around the cemetery. Stay safe. Stay well.